I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Having people challenge you and having failures in life are actually the best thing that can happen to you because they're going to toughen you up. They're going to make you realize, learn from your mistakes. You're going to bounce back. And bouncing back from adversity is what will tend to make you more fearless than ever. Robert Greene is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Laws of Human Nature, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, and Mastery. Robert was originally a guest on episode number 123, so if you want more content, go ahead over there and check that out. This episode dives deep on many of the key lessons Robert learned throughout all of his writings and what he's focusing on now. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Robert, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Sean. Thank you very much. Just celebrating the great win of the Dodgers last night. Yeah, a native to Los Angeles, so I know this has been a huge past couple months for you. Um, it's yeah. funny, I, I was thinking about this conversation with you, and one of the words that always comes up for me with regards to you is just determination, both because the monstrosities of the books you write, the amount of detail and information, but then what you dealt with last time we talked, coming o- overcoming the stroke. How's it been? I just feel like determination for you is just at the root of you. 
Well, it is true, you know, um, it's been, uh, I don't remember exactly when we spoke. Was it shortly after my stroke? Uh, actually, you had a, a couple months to recover. So I want to say it was just over a year, year and a half ago. Oh, really? So we talked not that long ago. Um, well, you know, it's, it's been really kind of a, a struggle. Um, I had to deal with some of my own personal limitations, which is, along with determination, is sometimes you can get impatient. So I work, I've been doing like several hours of therapy every day, physical therapy. I see a physical therapist every week because I'm so wanting to get back my old life of swimming and hiking. And it's just going so slowly and I just get very frustrated. And I just have to learn, tell myself, you know, the little things, you're still alive. You still have your brain. You're still able to, you know, write another book. And my wife tells me, you are recovering, you are getting better. It's just in my own body, it feels like, damn, I thought at this point, two years after, I'd be at least 50, 60% back to what I used to do, like at least to take some hikes, but I'm not. So it's just it's life. Yeah, it's life difficult times. Fortunate enough, though, we're getting to have this conversation again, and I know you're you're even incredibly fortunate for that. I am wondering, though, and being able to assess so much throughout your life, how vital and important have challenges been to your personal growth? Well, I should also preface this by saying I understand that a lot of people right now are going through things a lot worse. So I'm often I'm very aware of that, and so I try to uh, hold down as much as much as I complain or reduce it a bit. Um, you know, my whole life has been a challenge. I mean, it is for everybody really to, to get ahead in this world, unless you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth and on third basis, they call it, you know, your, your life to get to be successful is full of all sorts of challenges. And the challenge for me initially was, you know, uh, I had to kind of make my own way in the world. I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I traveled around the world trying different jobs and struggling and working, you know, not very well-paid positions and never quite figuring out what I wanted to do. And then getting criticized and being told, Robert, you're never going to be a writer. You don't have what it takes to be a writer. Dealing with a lot of doubt. And then my own kind of, you know, my own issues where I, I maybe sometimes wouldn't work as hard as I should have on something. I would give up. And finally, you know, when presented with the opportunity to write my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, I was already about 37 years old, somewhere around that range. And um, I was so hungry and so ready for that moment that, you know, it was an incredible challenge to write a book. I've never written a book. Um, and to be as ambitious as I am to write something that I felt would be a classic that could stand up with Machiavelli and Sun Tzu and something like that. But then you have to prove it. You can't just have these dreams and these illusions. You have to actually do the work. And so, you know, those challenges definitely made me who I am today. I tell people in life, you never want to be at kind of an even level where things are kind of at what you can, you know, at where your goals and skills are, you know, you can match it. You want it to be kind of like right up here. If the challenge is too high, you're going to fail. So if I tried to write, you know, something that was outside of the realm of possibility, I would have probably failed and it would have been a kind of a bad emotional experience. 
But when it's a little bit, it's a step, half step or step above you, all of your energy, your determination, your resolve, your creativity will come into play and you will rise to the occasion and you'll learn from it. You'll get tougher. So it's a good question. Challenges have always been sort of the source of, of what fuels me. Robert, I absolutely love this. I mean, you're, you're the master in, in terms of decoding human nature and understanding mastery. So I'm wondering, how do you go about calibrating that level that's just above your comfort zone? Is that something that you're kind of drifting back and forth on? And as long as you're doing it over the long term, you're on the right path? Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, you know, you don't consciously think about that exactly like, oh, I have to find exactly that kind of challenge, but it is sort of my process. So the 48 Laws of Power, you know, I could have made it an easy book. I pitched it to the man who was a packager, the producer, as a book on kind of the Machiavellian version of power in the world today. I could have made it a lot easier for myself. I could have just done what a lot of self-help writers do, just kind of write a quick book in a year filled with some advice and some ideas. And it would have been a lot easier. But I gave myself this challenge of, I want to do incredible research. I wanted to read hundreds of books. I wanted to make this a universal book. So my ambition was, this isn't just a book for Americans. I want Chinese people to read it. I want Russians to read it. I want people in Europe to read it, Africa, all over the world. So I had to get stories from all over the world so I could make it. This isn't just a book about white men in power. It's about everybody. It's about African-Americans, it's about women, etc. So I gave myself a goal that was, you know, above what I could have easily would have just been that book I first mentioned to you. This was like right there. It was a challenge, but it wasn't impossible because prior to the 48 Laws of Power, I had something like 50, 60 different jobs. So I had seen so many different kinds of power games and manipulation. I had a lot of experience to draw upon, particularly in Hollywood. And then I read so many books on history and I'm always thinking about strategy. So it wasn't a stretch for me to try and reach to what I, my goal was, but it was certainly a challenge because the second thing was I chose a form of the book, which you now know probably, which no one, you've never seen a book that looks like that, right? Mm -hmm with these stories, the interpretation, the things on the margin, the little images. It was a risk, you know, because that could have failed. But that was a challenge to make the book unusual and different. I tell people in this world that, you know, it's kind of like in ecology, in, 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 a, in, a, in an ecosystem. An animal that finds the right niche where there's no other animals that are there living and living in a certain area and having certain food that it can get to is going to survive and evolve faster than one that's crowded in an area where there are all sorts of other animals. And the same thing is for entrepreneurs, which, you know, a writer is essentially an entrepreneur. If you follow what everybody else is doing, which in my case would have been the usual kind of sappy self-help book about you're wonderful, people are great, you just need to get along, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was a crowded field. Nobody would have ever taken notice of me. I found my niche. I created a book that's kind of dark. It's kind of full of history, but the kind of is, has a certain tone to it. So, you know, and I do that for each of my books. I don't want the book. That's another problem a lot of writers have is they kind of keep redoing the same book over and over again because it's easier. I always try and make my next book a challenge so that when I start the book, I go, damn, this is going to be a little bit hard. 
I have to rise to the occasion. I have to really nail the research. This book could easily fail. It might embarrass me. So I'm constantly creating those kind of challenges for myself. That's my process. Yeah, it's almost that creative destruction approach. It's funny. I think you just put the puzzle piece together for me, why your work resonates so much with me. And all those typical self-help books, it looks like someone came up with an idea in a weekend and decided to slap together a book. It's so apparent that you've done years and years of work and research. And so it's almost that that appreciation for you in, in terms of doing that. But then also they read like an amazing biography and then they have the self-help component as well. So it's, it's the, the total package there. I, I am really intrigued, though. You mentioned finding that niche and, and just such an entrepreneurial twist and, and mindset there. How did you go about that, both in terms of willing to take on the risk, but then also carving out that own path? Well, um, you know, you have to have you have to have some experience in life, first of all, to understand that that is the game. And I talk about it in my book, Mastery, that the game is really to realize what makes you different, not what makes you similar to other people, because there's no power in that. But your power lies in your uniqueness, in your individuality and what separates you because you have your unique DNA that I talk about nobody else has ever had before your own experiences in life, you have a unique energy, a spirit, and that's your purpose in life is to use that to its utmost, right? So you reach a point in life where you know that you're different from others. How can I use that? How can I exploit that? So, um, you know, that in of itself shows you're trying to create your own niche. So my little niche, if you want to go there, is... um, I had been right. I wrote in journalism and I didn't like it, but it taught me how to write under a deadline and how to write, co- you know, coherently and, and clearly. I worked, I tried to write novels, which I didn't do very well at, but it taught me how to create something in a format that's entertaining and interesting. Then I wrote, I worked in Hollywood, which taught me all about entertainment. And also it taught me a lot about power because I saw a lot of power games. And so by combining all of that, I could re- make this book. Now, most people in my position would have said, well, you know, I don't really have the experience. I don't have a degree in, in history. I don't have a degree in psychology. Who am I to write a book on power, right? So the second thing you need, besides having the cojones, pardon the expression, I love it. <laughs> to kind of create your own niche is to be fearless to not be fucking afraid. So many people are so afraid in this world. They're so timid that they only want to do what other people have done. They only want to follow the path that other people have followed, right? So I knew that I was not going to follow that path. I was not going to write a book that was just like all the other books about power. I was going to make it different. And then what happened was I made the book, as you now see it in the form that I made it, I turned it into the editor at Penguin. They had already bought the book. And they said, you know, Robert, we like it, but there's some changes we would like to make. The structure is a little bit too unusual for us. Why don't you make things kind of more like a seamless narrative instead of having all those bits that you that you created with the interpretation, the keys. And I talked with my partner, who is the Purdue packager of the book, Yost Elfers. And I said, look, Yost, and he agreed with me. If they're going to demand that, we're going to walk away. We're going to give back the large advance that we got. 
because that's not what we want to do. We, 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 we have faith in this, in what we've created. So you're going to be criticized for following your own path. People are going to tell you, oh, that's too risky. Oh, no one's ever done that before. Nah, 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 nah. You have to like say, just get out of my face. I'm doing what I want to do and I'm going to prove it to you. And having doubters is a very good motivating factor. Now, of course, my first book could have failed, which was a definite risk. And you're putting yourself out on the line. And I wouldn't be here talking to you if it did. But at a certain point, if you're going to create something unique, you have to be kind of fearless and kind of own it. You know, like I did it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, so be it. But, you know, that's where I think power in this world lies. And that was the path that I followed. Yeah, you're hitting on some big topics here. I absolutely love this. Uh, I'm thinking about that unique energy and that purpose. And once you have that, do you think that fearlessness comes? Well, you know, um, it's a good question about where fearlessness comes. I mean, to some extent, there's possibly a genetic component where some people are kind of born that way. Um, but it's also something you can develop you know, you can develop any kind of muscle or any kind of emotional strength within you. Um, and I don't really know where mine comes from. I think the genetic component for me is I have a mother who is extreme. She's like 93 years old. She is the most determined person you'll ever meet. You know, she just won't accept no for any kind of answer. So there's a kind of element where you believe in yourself. You have a self-confidence and you feel like you were born to create something. And I always had that kind of belief. So some people don't, some people, you know, and not to say that I didn't have moments of doubt. I had tremendous moments of doubt, you know, particularly before I wrote the book, but in the long scheme, I kind of really did believe in myself to extent that could, some people could have thought was grandiose. I thought I could have been a really, really good writer. And so when people start doubting you, as that man did when I was 25 years old, who said, Robert, you're never going to be a writer. Just go to law school, go to business school, give it up. You know, it hurt. But then three months later, I said, you know, I gave him the finger <laughs> in my own head. And I said, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to keep at it. So it's, it's whether you believe in yourself. But the other thing is, it's easy to believe in yourself when you've developed real skills, you know. So if you're like somebody who's just kind of floated through life and you've never really worked hard at anything and then an opportunity comes your way, secretly you're going to doubt yourself because you haven't put in the work. You don't really have the skill set to, to, to pull it off. And so the, those doubts are going to infect you. You're going to, be, you're going to take little half steps. And I always tell people, if you're prepared, if you have like something that you're nervous about, but you're prepared, you'll be a lot less afraid, you'll be a lot more fear, fearless. If you've done your homework, you have a, a big important job interview and you're very nervous, do your goddamn homework. Research the person you're interviewing with, research the company, research who was there before you and why they failed. And then you'll feel a lot better when you go in there. So I had reached a point where I had developed so many skills and I that I could believe in myself, that I had something to say and that I would stand by it. So those are kind of the combinations that will make you fearless. And, you know, having people challenge you and having failures in life are actually the best thing that can happen to you. 
because they're going to toughen you up. They're going to make you realize, learn from your mistakes. You're going to bounce back. And bouncing back from adversity is what will tend to make you more fearless than ever. Yeah, it's, it's so funny when that opportunity makes meets that preparation um, and it aligns with who you are, that, that unique power of yours. Uh, what people are capable of, it's pretty remarkable, but that work needs to go in there. I, I'd, I'd be really intrigued to know what's the narrative like in your head when when you're you're taking on one of these challenges, you're, you're experiencing a little bit of that self-doubt. Is there anything that's been consistent throughout your career? Well, um, you know, I what goes on in my head is um, a, a series of, am I actually going to pull this off? I give myself a challenge. I make it ambitious. And um, is this going to fail? You know, because I'm, I'm a very competitive person. You know, people who played card games with me or backgammon or chess or even sports, they know I don't like to lose. I hate losing, right? So putting myself in a position where I've almost bitten off more than I can chew, you know, in the book that I'm trying to write makes it so that I have to really up my game, you know? And, and so I'm constantly questioning myself. So I'm at, now I'm on my seventh book and I've had six, and I'm not trying to brag, but I've had six bestsellers you know, they've done very, very well. And here I am now on my seventh book, and I'm still going, damn, this book isn't going to work out. Hmm. You, you don't have the energy for it. Um, you're, you're getting older. You're losing your game. There's too much here. Maybe you didn't think through the concept enough. And so I, this, it's not a negative thing. It, like, makes me work harder, you know? So if I write a chapter, the first, if you're a writer, you know this problem you write something and the first flush you think man that's great it was really good i nailed it and then you reread it a few days later and you go wow that really sucked it's really not nearly as good as i thought it was you have to be willing to go through that process some people don't do that they think everything they write is wonderful so i'm always doubting what i write i go back and go the third a fourth a fifth a sixth a seventh draft till i feel like i really really nailed it so the voice in my head is often like an internalized voice, maybe from my parents, that you're not, you're not up to it this time. You're going to fall flat on your face. This, this book isn't going to work. You're going to have to go back to working at Walmart or something like that. So these are kind of motivating factors. That's what I'm hearing in my head. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm always intrigued, too, about how that during, during that process, so for you writing those books, how it changes you. And I'm wondering if there's one of your books do you think has changed you the most? Well, the laws of human nature led to my stroke. <laughs> so that, that was the biggest change because that book just literally killed me. Um, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, in, in, a, in a very banal way, the 48 laws of power was a huge change because I went from being someone who's an obscure nobody, kind of a loser, to somebody who's now, you know, meeting 50 Cent and rappers and political people, etc. So that was a huge change just from the success of it and from my own self-esteem. Um, the war book was a very difficult book to write, almost like human nature. It took a lot of thinking, more thinking than in almost any of my other books, because it was a very difficult subject. 
I wanted to make warfare relevant to everyday life, which a lot of books attempt, but never really quite go far enough. And it just was a very difficult book. Um, and it taught me a lot. The 50th Law, the book I did with 50 Cent, was another real lesson for me because I've told the story before, but when I first turned in the book with the publisher at the time, they were basically going to cancel the project because they, they, they thought I was taking too long. But more than anything, it really wasn't a stellar piece of work. I had tried to create something that was so much about 50 that I hadn't put much of myself in it. And so we had to find a new publisher, which was a very critical moment. You know, my reputation was on the line. I'm working with 50 on this book. We found another publisher and basically told me, you know, you need to make it more Robert Greene, put more of yourself in it. And okay, all right, you're right. All right. And they said, and you have eight months to get the book in. What the hell? I've got to write the whole book from scratch again in eight months. No way. And then I've, well, it's like get rich or die trying. I better do it or I'm gonna fail. And I and I did it, you know. So um that that really changed me. That showed me that I can do was a great boost to my confidence. I can do whatever I put my mind to, even under the worst time frame. So those are kind of the things how some of the books have changed me. Yeah, I can imagine that that amount of confidence in, in being able to do that in eight months uh, would be a tremendous value for you going forward. I am wondering about that self-discovery process. And I mean, you bring so many hard truths to light in your books. So I'm wondering, when you're doing all this research and you come across something that's completely negative, it seems like, and you're like, oh, wait a second, that sounds exactly like me. How, how, do you, how do you step back to really analyze yourself there and maybe see if you, if you need some change there? I'm not quite sure what you mean. Like if I see something negative about, and it's a quality that I have. Yeah. What you mean? Well, that was sort of the process in the laws of human nature where um, I'm kind of writing about these different facets of human behavior going back thousands of years. And they're sort of negative really. Um, but they have the potential for being positive if you're aware and you can turn it around. Things like narcissism, irrationality, short-sightedness, aggression, a dark side to your personality, grandiosity. And in writing the book, I had to come to terms with the fact that, yes, Robert, you have these qualities. You know, like I remember doing the narcissism chapter, and I never think of myself really as a narcissist, but I had to come to terms with the fact that really actually you are. You do have a lot of these traits. And particularly in the chapter on aggression, I had to recognize that I'm actually can be quite an aggressive person. Not unpleasant, but my the overall arc of my character is to be rather aggressive. And so, you know, it taught me some things. It taught me, first of all, I try and say it in the human nature book is that we try to elevate ourselves. We always think that we're better than other people unconsciously. We always think that we're smarter than the next person, that, you know, we're, we're more noble and, and generous, et cetera, you know, that we have these superior qualities. And I have that as well, obviously. And it had to knock me down a peg, which is sort of the point of the laws of human nature. You're not as great as you think you are, which is not the best tagline for trying to sell a book. Because most people want to hear, you're better than you think yeah. you are. And I'm telling you, no, you're not. You're actually worse than you are. You need to do some work. 
but it made me realize that I'm in the same boat, which was very good because it made me think, well, if I have to improve myself, how do I do it? So how can other, it made me relate better to my reader to see the own weaknesses and foibles in myself. So, you know, that's, that's sort of what I went through. What about when you actually come across one of those things and, and you said where, where we all think we're, we're better than we actually are? What about when you actually are better, right? Like, Robert, you're a terrific writer. <laughs> so I have to imagine you're, you should almost tap into that more. Mm, well, that's dangerous when you start getting like that. Um, that's where I talk about the, the chapter on grandiosity. Um, you know, I have in the 48 Laws of Power... A, a Japanese saying, which was, I can't quote it right now very well, but it was basically, when you win a battle, that's exactly when you need to tighten the strap of your helmet, yeah. which basically means when you win, that's when you really need to think about yourself and think about your own limitations and go back to square one. So the moment you start saying to yourself, Robert, I'm a great writer, is the moment that your that inner tension starts lessening and it shows up in the work. You start acting like you think you're great and you put unconsciously, you put less work, less effort into the project. You kind of glide by with what you wrote before. And that's not good. It's better to think that, you know, you're not really as good as you think you are and you need to up your game because, you know, you live in a world where um, most of us have, we don't have a, we may have a boss, but we're kind of on our own. We have to motivate ourselves. We have to get up in the morning and figure out what drives us because it's not coming from the outside. People aren't telling us, get up and write that book, get up and do this or that. You have to have it within, from within, right? And so having a little bit, a bit of doubt about yourself or I, I need to get better at this will motivate you. Now, if it's another thing, if it's too high, if you really doubt yourself, if you really think you're, your crap and you can't meet it, then, then you're just crushed. But it's better to have that little bit of doubt, that little voice in you saying, you're not as good as you think, Robert, than to have that voice, well, I'm just the best, you know? I've got the Midas touch. Everything I do is wonderful. So, um, and that's very dangerous because by our nature, we always overestimate ourselves. And psychologists have proven this. The people, we always think, that we're smarter than the actual reality, that we have a higher Q than we actually have, that we're more clever than we actually are, on and on and on. And so to feed that and success will do that is very dangerous. You need to have your feet on the ground and you need to find these little motivating factors like I mentioned here. Yeah, you, you shine such tremendous light on, on, on these complicated topics. It, it kind of reminds me of the story I read about uh, Ray Allen when he was down in Miami and they won the championship. And it was the next morning and he was just back in the gym. He's like, this is all I know how to do. He was like, right, I've right. got to keep getting better. There, there's nothing else here. Um, it, it, it's funny. Well, though. That, you know, maybe maybe you could take yeah. one day <laughs> celebrate but i understand that very much yeah i always love hearing about your depth of thought around these things so i'm wondering for you is there a particular skill or mindset you have that you think's just hardest to pass on to others well um it's that i want to make something that i'm very proud of i want to have something that there's a legacy i don't want to do shoddy work out there i don't want to be someone who kind of does three quarters of what they could have done. I want to go all the way because 
I hate the word because it's like I'm bragging, but it's like an integrity thing, you know? Or do you feel like you need to do, are you actually thinking about the readers and your audience or your customers or whomever you're trying to appeal to? And you're thinking about them and you want to please them and you want to create something that will really have an effect upon them. So that kind of conscientiousness is a, a very important quality to have. Because it means no matter where you go, you're going to be conscientious and diligent. You're going to work hard. So I tell people, even if you're in a crap job and you know that you're worth better than that, you know that, you know, you're better than flipping burgers at McDonald's. You, you, you have some artistic talent or some entrepreneurial skill. When you're at that job, just do the best you can and try and use it as a learning experience because that's a skill always trying to do the best job that you can and rise up to the occasion and learn from each experience and don't just use it as dead time. I have this thing that I talk about with Ryan Holiday about alive time versus dead time. If you're just at a job and just kind of going through the motions, you're like, it's like you're dead. Mm -hmm. You're not learning anything. You're not productive. But if you're there always like observing people and trying to understand human nature better, if you're trying to figure out how, you know, what makes someone successful, et cetera, you're always going to learn. So the, the attitude that I'm always going to do the best that I can, I'm always going to learn from situations, everything is, is an education for me, is the most important skill that you can have in life, because it means you're constantly improving, you know? And so even when I had jobs, and I've had some terrible jobs, believe me. What was the worst and I one? Probably, hmm? What was the worst one? Well, you know, I mean, the most soul, some of the most soul-crushing ones were jobs in Hollywood, where I really hated what we were making. But I had some responsibility in that job. So I worked as a temp in Los Angeles, a temporary worker, and they would send you out to all these different jobs where you're just doing office work like that, like the television show, The Office, you know, kind of really demeaning jobs like that. And I, I remember in LA when I was back in the early nineties or so, I was sent as a temp to this like aerospace company in Los Angeles. Man, it was the most depressing place I'd ever seen in my life. Nobody wanted to work. They were making missiles, so nobody, everybody kind of hated what they were making. And it was like something out of the 1950s that were like yellowed pictures of Dwight Eisenhower on the wall, things like that. I mean, it was great because it gave me a lot of material for a screenplay, but it was a very depressing place to be in. I mean, I've had other probably even worse jobs than that. Can a place but, like that, can say there's a thousand employees there, can that place change can can someone come in and a group change the zeitgeist there? Uh, I write about that in, in the laws of human nature. I talk, I have a chapter on cultures, you know, so whenever you put together more than two people, you create a culture because humans interact in a particular way and they kind of create a group mentality. So if you have 10 people, that'll happen. If you have a hundred people. Yeah. If you have 20,000 like Microsoft, whoa, it's very strong. You can feel it the moment you walk into their offices. And if you have like a stagnant culture where people aren't really trying hard and it's kind of like the ghosts of the past are there um, and you come in as a new leader, a new CEO, 
It's extremely difficult to create a new culture. It's extremely difficult. There are ways you can do it, um, but it, you know, and I outlined some of my ideas in, in the laws of human nature, but it's much better if you're gonna do it, it's much better to come into a situation where you, it's new and you're able to create your own culture. So the, the lesson for, for entrepreneurs that are, the most important lesson is if you're starting a business, keep in mind that you are the one creating that culture. It all starts from you, your spirit, your mentality, your attitude, will filter down all the way through the hundreds of people in your office. So it's up to you from day one to create the right kind of culture. And if you do it the right way and you make some mistakes, which inevitably will happen, you can correct them. But to come into a place which has a static, conservative, rigid-like culture, and we see it all the time, you know, like Microsoft is a company where I've actually given talks and I know the, the culture there. You know, Steve, um, Bill Gates steps down, Balmer is gone, new CEO comes in. And, you know, he's got a lot of energy and everything, but it's such a hard thing to change such an entrenched culture. And there's some, and there's some positive things about the culture at Microsoft, undoubtedly. But to come in and try and change something like that is very difficult. And you see that, I mean, I give examples in the laws of human nature. So, you know, people will come into the, into the, uh, into politics, you, you you enter the Pentagon, the Defense Department, and you know the the definite the def, the heads of the Defense Department. You're the new head of the Defense Department. You're going to reform it. You're going to change that culture. You find it's impossible. It's going to change you. And that's what happened in the Vietnam War. All these generals came in who thought, "I'm going to put the brakes on this war because it's not working out." They ended up go in the opposite direction because that was the culture. And in Hollywood, directors and people think they're going to come and they're going to change that culture. The moment you enter Hollywood, it changes you. You become part of it. and You're not even aware of that. So it's, it's almost impossible. I would say don't take a job like that if you can. You no, know, sound, or, sound or, advice. <laughs> or do what I say in, in the 48 Laws. Um, uh, always preach the need for change or for reform, but but don't but do very little, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I know you're such a fan of history, much like myself, and you've studied so much throughout history. Who have you been most impressed by in terms of the culture they created? This could be within a business, a company; it doesn't matter. Well, the 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 paradigm I create, I have in my books, and that I always think about, is George Marshall, who took over the Defense Department in the 1930s. Essentially, FDR told Marshall, he's the person who created the Marshall Plan. Um, he said, look, I think we might be heading towards a war with Germany, something like that. He's talking to him like in 1936, 37. And we are woefully underprepared for this. And I've inherited a Defense Department that is so celerotic, that is so filled with old men who have like these sinecures, they have these positions where they don't do anything, but it's just like a, a paid salary for them. And they're holding onto these little domains. It's all these little political little tribes within the Pentagon. I can't fix it. I can't do anything. And, and I need someone to come in and reform the hell out of this thing from the bottom up. And Marshall, in within a course of three years, this complete magic. He, he's really the one 
besides FDR, if you want to give credit, who is responsible for how well we did in that war and saved our lives, in, in essence. He basically realized, first he got rid of all the old men who were just collecting a paycheck. He was kind of brutal, which is something you need to be sometimes in life. You need to be, you know, my, I, I've told my wife, happiness is firing people. Sometimes firing people is a joyful thing because they don't do the job and they're just, they're nasty and they're manipulative. Get them out of there. He fired dozens of people who were holding things up. And then he decided, I need to fill this place up with lieutenants, disciples, people who have my spirit. I give them a mission statement, which is a military term, you know, comes from the German uh, philosophy of warfare, the mission statement. And they're going to fulfill it. So I don't have I don't have to be micromanaging this thirty thousand um, you know employees in the Defense Department. It's too much. And so he chose all of these brilliant people, including Eisenhower, including Bradley, all of the ones who became great generals in World War II, to be his man there to do the kind of reform jobs that he needed to do. He was thinking he had the spirit and the new ideas. They were the ones that executed it. He created a brilliant paradigm. And I tell people, if you want to learn more, go to my book, The 33 Strategies of War. I believe it's chapter five in there. I talk about Marshall and I describe in, in detail how we did it. But that is the model for how you reform a culture. And he created people like Eisenhower. Eisenhower would not have been, we would not know about him if it wasn't for what Marshall did. And he was like, a brilliant, brilliant lieutenant who could execute his ideas and then went on. He learned so much under Marshall and went on to be a great general. So I think he's, to me, the most brilliant person who's ever done it. But he, it was hard work. It was very difficult. And he put a lot of mental and en creative energy into thinking how to do it best. Yeah, I'm thinking about that mental and creative energy and a lot around hierarchy and rank. Um, and I was actually I was just led, reading a, a Wall Street Journal article about Jack Dorsey um, and about how hands off he is with with his approach to leadership. And do you think that decentralized approach is something that we're going to see more of moving forward? It depends on on the culture. It depends on where you are. You know, some places you need a more centralized hand on there. I don't, I don't have a particular example that comes to mind, but I've been around different cultures where, you know, kind of having it decentralized is, is a recipe for disaster. It depends on who you are and what the kind of company or business that you're creating. So hands off can be also a recipe for disaster. I would, if it were up to me, I would take kind of a middle road, which is sort of like, what I'm saying um, Marshall created. And it is also sort of what Napoleon created it back in the, in the early 19th century with how he structured his army. So you're the person in charge, you're creating the, the spirit there. And I I've definitely, definitely don't like leaders and CEOs who just sort of let other people run the, run the ship for them. Because the spirit the attitude that pervades a company comes from the person on top, whether it's man or woman or whomever, right? You better believe that and you better create the right kind of attitude, right? So you can be hands off. And what's going to happen is it's going to be like a classroom of kindergarten children when the teacher leaves the room. It's going to be chaos, right? 
that's if that's your approach. I don't really know what's going on with Twitter. I don't know what their what the esprit de corps is like there. So I, I'm not criticizing Mr. Dorsey. He's probably not as totally hands off as as we're saying here. But you're the one in charge. You're creating the the top down spirit. And then, but you're not a micromanager. I've been around CEOs. I was on the board of directors of a company where the CEO was more the centralized person who, who was basically created the whole spirit of the company, but he was too much of a micromanager and it drove him crazy. It, 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 was, it, it exhausted him. And when you get exhausted, you make bad strategic decisions. So there you need to be centralized and then to decentralize a bit by finding the right people to have like a structure. The other thing I tell people is when I consult is the structure of your company is a very creative decision. It's as creative as Van Gogh painting a painting or whatever, because your structure is gonna be how your company functions, right? You want a company where the flow of information from top to bottom, bottom to top, goes very quickly and fluidly, where there are not all these stop gaps where people stop telling you what's going on down here. You wanna have a full range of information. So you want to be on top, you wanna to be in control, you're the boss, you're taking responsibility, but then you have these layers of people below you who are doing a lot of the executing work for you. So it's a mix of the centralized and the decentralized. That to me is the ideal. But in some places it, it, it depends on the people you're working for. Yeah, it, it almost too many people are not observant and are not sensitive. Be sensitive to the people who work for you, to the kind of business that you're in. You know, some businesses need to be buttoned down and top down. Others need to be more fluid and open. So be sensitive to the people that are working for you and kind of reflect that in how you organize your company. I'm wondering, is that empathy, being able to look through someone else's eyes and try to understand the circumstances they're in, do you think that's been one of the, the, the biggest realizations for you just with the amount of work you've done uncovering history? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard process. You know, you'd think that as social animals, I talk a lot about this in, in my last two books, as social animals, you would think that we would naturally be gifted for this. And we do have an empathy muscle the way our brains are designed and as social animals. But we live in a culture where people are becoming more and more self-absorbed, right? They're in their, their smartphone or whatever. And it's reflected in psychological studies and, and how much more narcissism is a problem in, in, in our culture in general. And so it's, I think it's harder and harder for people with the levels of self-absorption we have for you to actually get inside the spirit of other people. But think about it this way. You have, you know, if I told you, uh, Sean, I could give you a, a pill, a magical pill that would suddenly bring you all the power in the world, everything would open up for you. You go, yeah, man, I, I pay you $10 million for that. Okay, well, here, I'm going to give it to you right now. It's not a pill. It's just some advice. And that advice is the following. No matter what you do, and your day-to-day -day level, if you transform yourself into someone who is able to get inside the minds of others and, and understand what they're going through, their emotions, their predicaments, their problems, the whole world will open up for you. Everything will happen because you'll be able to persuade them. You'll be able to have influence over them. You'll, it'll open up all these doors for them.
so you'll you'll be able to understand what they are like from the inside out. Now you can't I can't read your mind. That's not possible. But I can read your moods, your emotions, your your tone and things like that. And I can get a sense of what's bothering you, what you what you like, what you what your values are. And from that position, I can go in and I can do something where I'm appealing to your self-interest and then you're going to do something back for me. Okay? I'm a writer and I have to think about my readers getting inside how they're going to read this particular page means I'm now thinking deeply of you and I'm going to write something that's going to connect to you thinking of your customers that you're trying to sell a product to and not just in your head with your own brilliant ideas but getting inside their world their problems their issues what's bothering them you're going to create a product that's 50 that will connect with them 100 times better than if you just is stuck in your own ideas on and on and on if you're a politician and you truly truly are connected to the voters out there to to you know what their what their problems are what their day-to-day life is not in your little ivory tower not not in you know because you're you're a multimillionaire you don't understand them but you can understand them you can take the effort and that will lead to incredible powers of political it is the 10 million dollar red pill that will change your life if you're able to develop that kind of empathy skill. I'm thinking about that empathy with your customers and and you someone with millions of readers. Is there a particular avatar you're picturing when you're thinking that through? Well, the thing for me is <clears throat> I'm writing books that I'm trying to <clears throat> excuse me, I'm trying to appeal to everybody. So, you know, I uh, you know, my books tend to skew a little bit towards younger men, <clears throat> excuse me, in their in their 20s, but I'm not conscious. I'm trying to appeal to everyone. I want women to read my book, I want older people to read my books, I want as diverse an audience and 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 global as possible. So it makes it a little bit harder because I'm trying to think of what connects everybody, what's relevant to everybody's experience. And so um you know, it's it's more ambitious that way. Mm-hmm. But um So I have to go through a process of what what are these universal human concerns, you know? So for instance, all of us are insecure. All of us have insecurities, right? And how we deal with our insecurities will be um, either we will succeed or we won't, right? All of us are afraid of dying and death. We have that elemental fear and how we deal with that fear, believe it or not, will play a huge role in how successful we are in life. All of us feel envy. We constantly compare ourselves to other people. So I choose qualities and things that I understand everybody shares because they're part of just being a human being and I think about those deeply as I'm writing what I'm writing. During that research process where you're trying to uncover these universal laws and principles I I guess I'm wondering like how deeply have you thought those through prior to the research and then during that research process how do you know this is one that's going to make the book Well um you know you you develop a kind of a muscle after you <clears throat> done six books so it's kind of gotten better and better and better but from the very beginning even the 48 laws I look for stories that have a kind of um mythic quality to them they kind of transcend time and place hmm. they have some sort of elemental drama to them the human being in a predicament 
where it's either life or death or, or failure or success or humiliation or whatever. And so just things that are strongly emotional and powerful. And so, but they also have to be stories that I can narrate, you know, that have a human dimension to them. So when I'm doing research, it doesn't happen often, maybe one out of 30 books, my eyes light up, wow, that's a great story, hmm. or that's a great little tidbit in there, because that's going to really resonate with people, you know. Um, it's, it's not the best example, but when I did the laws of human nature, because um, sometimes it's like a little paragraph in a book that nobody else would notice. I was reading in the, the ancient Roman writer Tacitus, who wrote these histories of ancient Rome, and he had this story of this man who was so irritating to everyone. He was like a demagogue politician that they hated him and they banished him to this town in Northern Italy. And then in that town, he so irritated people that they couldn't stand him. And finally, by the end, they had to banish him to this tiny little rock in the ocean where he'd be alone because nobody could stand being around this person, right? And it was just in like a paragraph. Like, Whoa, what a great story. You know, what a great thing, because certainly we all know that we have people who were so fucking irritating. They're just such troublemakers. They're always roiling the waters. They're such pests that would, could, wouldn't it be wonderful to just put them on a rock somewhere where they could yell at the waves or the sky at the cloud and irritate the birds and then and leave us completely alone. A story like that has comedic value, has drama and has a lesson to it, you know. So I'm looking for things like that. And over the years, I get better and better and better at identifying them, you know, but um, it's always, it's not easy, you know, because some, like the book that I'm researching now, it doesn't lend itself to, to the same kind of story. So I've had to change my game a little bit and find different ways of doing this. But um, I'm looking for things with dramatic value that are going to make you entertain you and enlighten you. And if you have those two things, then you, you've got it. No, certainly. It, it kind of sounded like you might have someone uh, in, in mind there as, as you were telling that story about put, putting someone out there on the rock in the ocean. Oh, we all, we all do. We all do. Yeah. No, I, I love hearing about you, even even the six previous books, and then just continuing to evolve. And I, I know we kind of split ways here when we were talking about that lifelong learning and, and continuing to push yourself. So it's so interesting to hear that. Someone I think about a lot with regards to that, and I know this is someone that you had great admiration for, uh, is Kobe Bryant. And I would love to hit on him for a minute because being a former athlete, I resonate so much with having that, that dark side, that animal instinct. Uh, and I would love to just hear your riff on, on Kobe. What, 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 what sport did you play? Well, I would not bat. I played lacrosse. So um, really, oh, yep. That's 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 a, that's a tough sport. Yeah. So just oh, oh. we have some injuries that just show some scars. <laughs> yeah, cer certainly do. Um, um, but yeah, well, um, you know, I, I love Kobe. Uh, I'm I'm a, a a diehard Laker fan, and uh, those years late 90s and early 2000s with Shaq and Kobe, my God, it's like, you know, it's like the, the best time to be a basketball fan. Those were such golden years. And then the then the re rebound with Powell Gasol and the, the two more championships. So I loved Kobe for several reasons. First of all, he was an amazing player to watch. He was so graceful. He could do things that nobody else could do. You know, you would always say, 
that is the most impossible shot I've ever seen. Nobody can do that. How did he do that? Again and again and again. But the other thing was he worked so hard at it. He, he was like Ray Allen, you know, he was always in the gym. He was always trying to get better. He hated losing. Nothing, you know, was more, he, he was more afraid of anything than losing. He never rested on his laurels. He never did what you told me to do, which is to say, I'm a great writer. He never said, I'm a great basketball player. He was always looking to improve himself. He had to develop new moves. He had to develop a mid-range jumper at some point. He had to develop a three-point shot that he never was that good at originally. He had to learn to be a better team player, how to pass more, which he did. Um, and how to just be a general leader as a role model for the team. All of these things he was constantly learning, constantly improving. He had weaknesses. He's a human being like all of us. He wasn't perfect. But he was also a very eloquent and graceful person. I, you know, he never embarrassed himself when he talked. I always thought this is somebody who's very eloquent. He's, he's, he's had an incredible amount of experience. He's learned a lot. And then... I wrote about, I've talked about it in my Human Nature book, where I talk about the dark side of, of our personalities. And I explain that all of us have what I call a shadow side to our personality. And I explain in that chapter where it comes from. Very briefly, we all have to be these socially perfect creatures that are always so pleasant to be around, always polite, and always telling people what they want to hear that the dark side of us, which exists in all of us, which certainly exists in children, gets pushed down and down and down and down. And we repress it and it, it's dangerous when we repress it because then it comes out in moments that we can't control. But the best people in life are, know that, are able to acknowledge this dark energy and to use it productively. And Kobe, his dark energy was, man, he hated to lose. He was gonna crush you on the basketball court. Now, Michael Jordan was very similar in that way. But what a great thing to take that kind of aggressive, bitter, angry ad energy that he had and channel it into winning a basketball game and being the best as a team player in that sport is, the, is a kind of a paradigm for all of us. Where if, if I tell you, if you're an artist, don't be afraid, or a writer, don't be afraid of your anger. Don't be afraid of your dark energy. Put it into your work in some way. If you're if you're someone who cares about social issues, don't just like get angry at your cat, or your dog, or your wife, or whatever. Channel it into a cause and build a great cause. Channel that dark energy into something productive because it's very powerful energy. And Kobe kind of exemplifies that for me. It almost seems like one of the reoccurring themes here comes down to awareness and awareness of yourself and your natural tendencies. Do you think that's one of the, the biggest themes throughout your work? Yeah, and it's not easy um, because, you know, who do I know better in life? What do I know most? Well, it's myself, obviously, because I live with myself every day. I hear my own thoughts, et cetera. But the truth is you don't know who you are. You're a mystery to yourself. And that's sort of the point of the laws of human nature. You're walking around with these assumptions that you know, you're in control of your life, you make rational decisions, etc. You have no idea about how you're governed by unconscious impulses, how you're manipulated by things you see on television or on social media, how you conform to the people around you, how much you were determined by your early childhood experiences, 
things that were impressed upon you, perhaps traumas from your parents at an early age, you're carrying them around with you all your life and they're determining your behavior and you have no idea about this. So you, the first thing you need to do to be a better human being and to have more power and success in life is to get down on your hands and knees and say, yes, I, Sean, me, Robert, yes, I don't know who I am. I am a mystery to myself. There are things inside me that I have no control over. Let me see if I can begin to understand myself better. And that first step, that admission, is a very important critical moment because being self-aware, you can now begin to correct those mistakes. You could read 2 million self-help books in, in your life, and I would never recommend doing that. Um, and you'll never get better ever. It won't matter one whit because you don't know who you are. You think you're fine. You don't, you're not able to internalize any kind of criticism, etc. You need to know who you are before you can change who you are. I absolutely love that. I, I think I already know what the intro to this, uh, this episode is going to be that, that minute long riff there was absolutely amazing. Uh, so I, I just always learn so much every time we get to talk. So I always feel so fortunate. So for that one thing I would love to know though, so you did the book with 50 cent, if you could do a book with anyone and this could be anyone throughout history, who would you elect to write a book with? Anyone throughout history. Well, that, that makes it so easy for me. Gosh, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I would do a book maybe with Napoleon because, you know, what a great strategist he was. Speaking of uh, becoming too into, into his ego and thinking he's too great, he had a few good years there and then uh, he let the yep. ego get to him a bit. Yep, yeah. But those first years yeah. are incomparable in the history of warfare and strategy. Believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed about. with Napoleon, so. Those years of 1798 to 1806, no military leader could ever come closer than the, than the last eight years were pretty disastrous. Maybe 1808 would be the turning point with the invasion of Spain. So he had a good run for a while, but then, as you say, his ego got to him. I'd like to do a book with Leonardo da Vinci. You know, as I did in Mastery, I, I, I found him, I found him, in, and then Machiavelli. I think he and I together would do a great book. I mean, I would be more of his disciple. I would, you know, tell him what's happened in the, in the last 500 years or so since he died. But uh, I think we would do a really interesting book together. Yeah, those would be so fun reads. I, I, will, um, I will suggest that to my editor, see what yeah. we can do. No, no, no. I, I, need to, I need to ask this. You mentioned Da Vinci. He was one of those visionaries, and he wasn't just seeing decades out. He, he saw so far into the future. How was he capable of doing that? What is it about those few people throughout history who've been able to see that far out? Well, you know, I don't know if there's a formula for it, but, um, you know, I talk in mastery about him and, and there was another German writer named Goethe who was like that. These are people that you would call a universal person. I mean, the word is universal man, but we sh I don't say that anymore, a universal person meaning um, <clears throat> your knowledge is wide ranging. So you're aware of science, what's going on in science. You're also aware of things happening in the culture. You're aware of the political situation. You're aware, you have a deep understanding of history and how things work. And if, if you reach a point like the proverbial 10,000 hours, 
20,000 hours of that kind of deep thinking, you're on a level where you have a, a kind of global perspective on things. The, the German word is gestalt. You can see the entire shape of what is happening. And with that kind of awareness of the times that you live in um, and, and other things, gives you a way to kind of understand what the future is going to be like. You know, people who study something very deeply, and this is a little bit different from what I just said. Um, so the classic example is what's going to happen to the Soviet Union in the 80s, um, because it's obviously on the decline. And there were people who had these wild speculations, but then there were these experts who had studied the Soviet Union their whole life and who knew exactly where it was going and what was happening. They were predicted to a T what the 90s were gonna be like in that country once it, communism fell, the years with Boris Yeltsin, the anarchy that ensued, the rise of the oligarchs. They could predict it because they understood the Russian people so deeply, the Russian spirit and the situation. So when you have your hands on all the different aspects of something, you, you see the global picture, you're gonna be able to have a much better sense of the future. Nobody's a Nostradamus. Nobody can predict what's going to happen. Uh, da Vinci is a little different because his, he was on the level of technology. So his thing about the future was he was able to create drawings and even some um, uh, instruments that were like, hundreds of years in advance. There's a story that always you talked to ask me about stories that interest me when I saw research. There was so, I can't remember exactly because I've done so many books, but he designed for a party for one of the kings in Italy or one of the um, dukes. He created this lion, this kind of lion sculpture that came to life and that breathed something that fire, I don't know what that came out I mean, the, the description of it was so insane. I'm going, really? He built that? That sounds like something out of nobody in the 21st century could build. What is this thing? You know, he had an uncanny sense of mechanics and technology because he had spent his whole life dissecting and seeing how things move and seeing how things, you know, that, what, what, their oper what made them operate, et cetera, that he could, could build and create and imagine on a much higher level. So it's a universality of knowledge, either in a particular field or in, in everything, you know, which is what made Goethe so brilliant because he was a poet and a scientist and a man who read history. And he predicted that there would be airplanes in the future, that Europe would form a common market. There would, there would be all these kind of interlocking technologies and also the dangers of it in the early 19th century. So there you go. Robert, I could, I could rift all day with you. So this is, this is such an honor for me, such a pleasure. Always learn so much. Um, uh, we're, of course, going to have everything linked up. Is there anywhere in particular you'd like the, the listener staying connected with you or checking out your work? Well, the best source for it is, you know, uh, is my original website, which still exists, which is powerseductionandwar.com. The and is spelled out. So power, seduction, and war.com. Those are my first three books, Power, Seduction, and War. And there you'll find links to my other three books, um, to my Instagram account, to Twitter, to Facebook, and to a, a, an email address where you can send me your 
your ideas or whatever, or your criticisms or whatever. So that's, and I, in my interview, so that's sort of the best site that we collect everything in. Awesome. Well, once again, this is always a true I also pleasure. have a new YouTube channel. Oh, you do? Yeah. We'll get that linked up as well then. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I only have like four videos on it, but they're there. Four well worth watching, I'm sure. Well, Robert Green, you go enjoy the uh, the Dodgers win there. and enjoy I'm going to. I'm going to go celebrate, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Robert. It was great talking with you. Very great. Thanks a lot, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.